Hillary Clinton will not have the requisite number of pledged delegates to win the Democratic nomination at the end of the nominating process. Won't happen. Says you. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Mm, but I'm not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radios. KPFK 90.7 FM, way out here in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK, as well as Oregon's 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Also out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Not to mention coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and yes, five days a week, blanketing planet Earth on Radio Sputnik. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. You can run, but you can't hide. Glad you at least found us today on uh, for another thrilling adventure of the Bradcast. You know, we keep searching. Searching and searching, I keep uh, looking for something, anything the Democrats and Republicans can come together on at the federal level to somehow improve public policy and life for all of us here in these United States. Yes, I realize it may be a futile search, but there's a lot uh, that seems to be futile these days. And frankly, in my opinion, giving up just giving up on trying to make a, a better world is not an option, at least not for me. Uh, so to that end, I'll be talking with uh, with my guest today, uh, a conservative about one area where we might, might, maybe, just maybe, hopefully, doubt it, but uh, who knows, maybe, uh, some hope of a, a real policy reform at the federal level supported by both Republicans and Democrats. I know I'm dreaming, but maybe I'm not. Maybe this will actually work. Maybe. We'll see. That's coming up. Also, uh, there were two Democratic nominating contests over the weekend, which were uh, both largely overshadowed by the big primaries on Tuesday in California, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. Uh, more, more on that, all of the above, in a moment. Uh, one place, by the way, where there seems to be little hope for real bipartisan reform, uh, at least at the federal level, at least for now, is on global warming. And yes, I'm turning to you, Desi Doyen, <laughs> whenever the uh, words global warming come up, the effects of which uh, continue to worsen and worsen. And uh, on our last program, we had talked about that ongoing wildfire up in Canada near the tar, ironically enough, near the tar sands 
uh, region uh, in Alberta. Right. Um, and the through what was it? Three hundred South African firefighters have flew twenty four hours to try to help out, give the Canadians a break in their firefighting efforts after a month trying to put out this fire. Right. One point that I did not mention is that well, I had said that it was you know in in no small part because of the uh, very hot, very dry conditions that they have been having up there in Canada. Um, but what I didn't mention is that the start of the fire season in Canada is just now. It's only starting now. That fire has been going on for like a month, I think, at this point. And the fire season is only starting now. Well, of course, we're talking about the official start of the fire season, you know, and that's sort of a, a legal and a funding designation that the agencies like to put forth. But yeah, the fire season doesn't really mean anything anymore because at least here in California, for sure, fire officials say there really is no fire season. It's fire year. It ran, it, There's fires all year round. And the same thing is now occurring up north in Alaska and in Canada and in the Arctic Circle but where fire season starts early and burns hotter. It's about two months longer on average now, according to studies. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I recall you reporting in the Green News report some time ago that fire season officially is something like 45 days longer than it used days, to be. 70 days, 70 days longer. Like 70 days, depending oh, on where man. you are. Well, yeah. it uh, it's just getting started down here in uh, Southern California. And we saw an example of that over the weekend as we saw two fires out here in Los Angeles um, that it is just so bone tinder dry down here in L.A. that one of these fires that became quite huge happened when a, a car hit a what was it hit an electric pole or something like that and. Yes, it hit several. It ha hit one telephone pole, knocked other ones down. It sounds like something out of a comical movie, but it wasn't comical at all. It started a fire that then just, uh, damaged two homes yep. and caused evacuation of five thousand people. Uh, and you got uh, you had taken some photos of the uh, the smoke from this fire because you could see it for miles in every direction. And uh, you had posted them on Twitter. Uh, someone noted, I think M Orley is uh, the Twitter person's name. There, you had posted these uh, this photo on your uh, Twitter account at Green News Report and uh, this person replied that the uh, Saturday fires burned over 500 acres in 12 hours overnight and that is without the 100 degrees Fahrenheit heat and wind that we often have out here in LA it's actually been quite cool for the past uh, week or two uh, without the wind. So this could be a very bad season. I, I just want to get that on record. On the other hand, as we reported on the floods and everything that were going on in, in Texas last week and out in Europe, these horrible rains, uh, there was an upside to one of them that we pointed out when uh, a couple of bandits who had held up a grocery store or something couldn't get away because their road was flooded. So there's an upside to climate change right there. And then the other upside is, Des, uh, those photos you took were really nice. It was a gorgeous sunset of well, that gosh, fire. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the unexpected Beautiful. side effect. You get really nice sunsets. See? Sorry about your house burning down, guys. So those people who say we, we don't report on all sides of the issues, there you go right there, fair and balanced. Two upsides of climate <laughs> change. Nice photos and stops uh, bandits from getting away. Uh, in the meantime, Tropical Storm Colin now is uh, nearing Florida. Residents on Florida's Gulf Coast, according to the AP, filled sandbags, closed schools early. Graduation ceremonies have been postponed as Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency with Tropical Storm Colin now churning towards the state. 
uh, threatening serious flooding. A large portion of Florida's western and panhandle coast was already under a tropical storm warning when the National Hurricane Center announced the swift-moving depression had become a named storm. The center says that it is the earliest that a third named storm has ever formed in the Atlantic uh, Atlantic Basin. That after a couple of years, a hurricane drought, as they call it, over the past couple of years. Now all of a sudden we're seeing the opposite, three named storms, and it's only early, Jan- uh, early June. Ronald Milligan, 74, stopped by a park in St. Petersburg where authorities uh, planned to distribute sandbags because the ditch in front of his home had already filled during the previous evening's rain. He said if last night was a no storm and the water was almost up to the hump in my yard, I'm worried, Milligan said, motioning to about knee level. He's lived in Florida since the late 70s and hasn't ever prepared for a storm this early, he said. So uh, that storm could make uh, landfall near the Big Bend area of Florida. Uh, It will move across the Florida uh, Peninsula into Georgia. Then it will move along uh, just off the uh, Southern uh, Southern Carolina coast before heading out to sea. Three to five inches of rain are expected, but uh, up to eight inches are possible across western Florida, eastern Georgia, and coastal areas of Carolinas through Tuesday. So the problem here is not uh, wind, uh, as you see with uh, many hurricanes, but uh, a lot of water is expected to uh, fall from the sky. Uh, A tropical storm warning is also in effect for the entire Georgia coast and the lower South Carolina coast Welcome to your new normal out there, climate change deniers. Okay, um, moving to the election and the new normal. Remember, uh, was it last week? It was only last week, I think, right after the holidays. Bill Crystal uh, over the holiday weekend, the guy who is always wrong, the guy who brought you, uh, he used to be chief of staff for Dan Quayle, then he worked, uh, he was the guy who gave John McCain the swell idea to, uh, hey, there's this popular woman governor up in Alaska who'd be great on your ticket, Mr. Senator McCain. Her name is Sarah Palin, and uh, he brought her on board. Bill Kristol is always wrong. And yet, for decades... He's on the media. He's on. You see him on the, all the Sunday shows. He, he, yet he's always wrong. He's consistently wrong, which I pointed out last week when he took to Twitter and said, uh, quote, just a heads up over this holiday weekend. There will be an independent candidate, an impressive one, with a strong team and a real chance. Bill Kristol has been leading the Never Trump movement, telling us early on it was impossible that Donald Trump could ever win the nomination. But they've been working hard to try to find a viable third-party candidate, which uh, he announced uh, was it a, a weekend or so ago, this uh, impressive uh, independent candidate that they now had. And of course, when I reported that, I also noted that Bill Krista was always wrong because this guy hadn't even introduced himself. He hadn't even come out yet. Nobody knew. Bloomberg found out that it was a guy by the name of David French who writes for the National Review, uh, who no one has ever heard of other than, I guess, Bill Kristol. Um David French, the conservative writer eyed as a possible third party alternative to Trump, isn't running for president, he said in Oops. a column on Sunday. French, a National Review staff writer, gave it uh, said he gave entering the race serious consideration, serious thought with, quote, some of the best minds in politics. 
Don't know if he was talking about Bill Crystal there or not. Uh, in any event, he said it would be tempting to say that uh, to say that when it comes to confronting this national moment, somebody stepping up is better than nobody. But somebody is not always better than nobody. He wrote, calling himself quote a pretty darn obscure lawyer, writer, and veteran. So uh, French, in his article, went on to uh, cite the failings of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton at great length, but uh, said he's concluded that an extraordinarily wealthy person or a transformational political talent would be best positioned for success, neither of whom is him, he says. Uh, He also wrote that uh, he believes there is a path there for the right candidate to run and win the White House this year. Um, So good luck with that. Uh, He said uh, that uh, he also suggested that while the next great political movement is poised to begin, quote, that movement may not emerge for some time and it might emerge only after further heartache and pain. You think? At least to his uh, his party. Uh, Bill Kristol, by the way, for his part. After French published his column reminding everyone how wrong Bill Crystal is all the time, uh, said the French would have been a fine alternative to Trump or Clinton, but, quote, a better choice remains necessary. So the hunt continues. Uh, and on Monday morning, Bill Crystal linked to French's column and cracked a, uh, a quote, a stiff drink helped these days. Oh. <laughs> Somehow I don't actually feel sorry for Bill Kristol, and I guess if he wants someone to advance in the Republican Party, he shouldn't say anything. Yeah. Because that's the kiss of death. Apparently so. All right, in the meantime, over the weekend, there were a couple of nominating contests on the Democratic side. Hillary Clinton scored a big win in the U.S. Virgin Islands on Saturday. Did you know they were having a a thing, a nomination? Yeah. uh, She won all seven pledged delegates at stake. She uh, destroyed Bernie Sanders 84 percent to 12 percent. AP notes that was almost as big as the margin that Barack Obama beat her with in the Virgin Islands back in 2008 when he beat Clinton 90 percent to 8 percent in the Virgin Islands. One of five U.S. territories that cast votes in primaries and caucuses. Uh, But they are not eligible to vote in November. In the meantime, that was Saturday. On Sunday, there was a uh, a larger race uh, in Puerto Rico with um, some. Well, let's see. So far, 64 is the best guess uh, of the delegates at stake. Hillary Clinton won that one as well. She had 61 percent of the vote so far. To Sanders, 39 percent of the vote, they are still counting. So at this time, Hillary Clinton picks up about 14 delegates in Puerto Rico, uh, seven in the Virgin Islands, uh, although uh, there's differing numbers on that as well. So about 20 additional uh, delegates for Hillary Clinton, uh, who had also won the Puerto Rico uh, Uh, contest in a landslide in 2008 against then-Senator Barack Obama. Clinton has uh, anywhere from 268 to 291 pledged delegates, depending on who's doing the counting, that according to AP. Um, But a 793 delegate lead if you include superdelegates, which uh, the AP and other media outlets continue to do for some reason, even though those superdelegates do not cast their ballots, cast their votes, I should say, until the convention in late July. 
Uh, and 700, some 700 delegates are up for grabs in uh, six states on Tuesday, this uh, Tuesday alone in New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, New Mexico, and the closest watch race in California, where some 475 pledged delegates will be up for grabs. And the two candidates are said to be in a statistical tie, according to the pre-election polls. But the media has uh, has their plan. They're going to announce that Hillary Clinton is the nominee for the uh, Democratic Party on Tuesday, most likely after the polls close in New Jersey, which Hillary Clinton is expected to win handily. Bernie Sanders says that uh, the media is doing the public a uh, no favors at all uh, by doing that, that it is not accurate to report Hillary Clinton as the winner based on the superdelegates who could change their votes for any number of reasons between now and uh, and the end of July when uh, they uh, Democrats hold their convention in where are they? Philadelphia, right? Okay. Uh, here was Bernie Sanders on Friday telling the media, don't do it. She's uh, not the winner based on the superdelegates, at least not yet. Hillary Clinton will not have the requisite number of pledged delegates to win the Democratic nomination at the end of the nominating process on June 14th. Won't have it. She will be dependent upon superdelegates. And what the DNC says is that the media is wrong. So when I hear media talking about, well, we're going to announce it at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time that it's all over, you're wrong. For her part, Hillary Clinton told supporters on Friday that, quote, if all goes well, I will have the great honor as of Tuesday to be the Democratic nominee for president. But in truth, that really is not how it works. She will not be the Democratic nominee for president, much as, frankly, uh, Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee for president. He's the presumptive nominee. Perhaps she will be the presumptive nominee. But she is not, not not the nominee, and Bernie Sanders is correct. Neither, no matter really, no matter what happens, unless there's some incredible surprise in California on Tuesday, uh, neither of the uh, nominees will, ha- neither of the candidates will have the uh, delegates needed to win the nomination. They're going to have to rely on the superdelegates. Now, the superdelegates may have said, told media that they will be supporting Hillary Clinton, and in fact, they might. But we don't know until they actually do. And these days, two months is a long time away. Our friend Cenk Uger of the Young Turks was on uh, on CNN over the weekend speaking with Brian Stelter of, uh, of Reliable Sources about this very topic. I want to play. I, I agree in part and disagree in part with uh, some of what Cenk had to say, uh, Des, but I want to play some of these uh, clips. Here's the first one on how uh, Cenk is talking about how the media has used the superdelegates from day one, actually before any votes were cast, to already uh, uh, put their thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton. Why do you think it's wrong for the media to acknowledge the facts? The facts are the superdelegates are largely on Clinton's side, and they're probably not going to move based on the interviews we've done with them. Why is it wrong for the media to acknowledge that on Tuesday night? Because they aren't facts at all. Uh, so first, let's just acknowledge what are actual facts, that the superdelegates do not vote until the convention. In fact, if they're not mm-hmm. at the convention, their votes won't get counted at all, which but is almost never said But the superdelegates are the establishment. They're all establishment people, and they're all voting for Clinton, only 46 for Sanders. Now, you, Brian, you guys, and I mean CNN and all of the establishment press, 
uh, totally tilted the playing field here from day one by counting those superdelegates, when in fact you know the superdelegates do switch their votes all the time. They switched it in 2008. They, Hillary Clinton had a 100 superdelegate lead, which completely vanished in 2008. So was the why media did you wrong count in it from day one, which was absolutely incorrect? It was, in fact, journalistic malpractice. Why did you guys do that? You so you're that saying more information is not a good bias. thing. We should hide people from the reality of what the superdelegates are no, thinking? No, 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 no. Brian, this is very important. If you say, hey, superdelegates are likely to vote this way, or they say they're voting this way, as an aside, that's perfectly fair. But if you count them in the official tally, when you know they can and often do switch their votes and have not voted yet, that is simply incorrect. That is not a fact. That is the opposite of a fact. That is the opposite of the fact. And uh, Jenk is right in pointing out that before any voter in the, the United States ever cast a ballot in this thing, the media was already reporting hundreds of, uh, of superdelegates supporting Hillary Clinton. As a matter of fact, before uh, Bernie Sanders even announced he would be a candidate. So that has given her this momentum this whole time, and that's fine, but it is misleading. It is not educating the electorate. It is miseducating the electorate. Stelter went on to ask uh, ask Jenk about uh, what could happen between now and the end of July that might change the way superdelegates wanted to vote. But the Hillary delegates switched because Obama was going to win. In this case, we know the superdelegates are establishment figures or former governors and people like that that are clearly pro-Clinton. Nothing's going to happen that's going to change their mind. Again, not true. So, uh, Brian, you say nothing's going to happen. happen. What's going to happen? Tell me. I, could, I can tell you exactly what could happen. Are the you wishing for an indictment? Are for extraordinary, hold on. They are for extraordinary circumstances. You know what would be extraordinary? If hmm. the, one, of the, one of the candidates were indicted. Of course. Mm-hmm. So I, you guys keep assuming there will be no indictment. And, Brian, I hear you have reliable sources. Well, so tell me, do you have any sources inside the FBI or the State Department that have already told you that she is not going to get indicted? Because that would be news. I do not. I cover media, not the FBI. But it, the indications at the moment are that she hasn't been in, interviewed by the FBI. I hear what you're saying about the indictment. But other than that, it seems to me you're, you're, you're misleading your audience, giving them more hope than they should actually have. You think about what's going to happen no, on Tuesday no, at 8 p.m. No. New Jersey's going to no, close. No, that's and not for the true first at all. Time- so let me just uh, jump in here to say that I, I, I disagree with, well, I, I think the uh, chances of Hillary Clinton being indicted, I guess this is referring to the email server and all of that, are unbelievably small, if non-existent. But I don't know. I have no idea. We have no idea. There have been reports of this and that. Uh, The report that came out showing that she may have been in violation of the Federal Records Act a week or so ago is, in fact, disturbing. But, you know, I I don't think there's a hell of a lot there. I don't think she I think the possibility of her being indicted is almost non-existent. But I don't know. I don't feel I have a need to go out and say, A, she's going to be indicted or B, she is not going to be indicted or C, she wins the nomination. Because why would anybody possibly change their mind? There's a lot of reasons they might change their mind. Uh, Certainly an indictment is one of them if that in that unlikely case where that were to happen. But if the polls continue to come out, continue to show Bernie Sanders doing much, much better uh, against Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton does, yeah, that could uh, uh, change people's mind between now and two months from now in uh, at the Democratic Convention, which is forever from now. 
Uh, one more uh, point that was on the uh, uh, CNN with uh, Jenk and uh, Brian Stelter concerning this uh, this historic moment. I, frankly, this is really exciting to say. For the first time in the history of this country, we're going to have a female nominee of a major party. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. That's something this country should note and acknowledge. And don't you think it's a shame that the Bernie Sanders talk is going to overshadow what we can all agree is a historic milestone? I mean, look at the framing you just gave it, right? So I think Hillary Clinton is a completely pro-establishment candidate that will continue this corrupt system where okay. private interests so finance about the elections. Milestone? And so, but instead of looking at it as, hey, wait a minute, one guy hasn't taken that corrupting money and the other one has, you frame it as male versus female and hence put me in a position where I'm forced to say, no, I don't think it would be historic because I think it's the same old uh, establishment, whether it's a male, a female, or anything else. So it, the framing is all biased. And I'm not saying that because I think that you're liberal or you're conservative, you're pro-Hillary or not. It's just the establishment told us from day one, the superdelegates have already voted when they did not, and you tell us today to, hey, mm. make sure you go away and you support the establishment candidate. And and so, and so and you're wrong about how I've presented it on the show. I tell people about the delegate math all the time. And as Bernie Sanders himself acknowledges, it is an uphill battle for him to win more pledges delegates a massive uphill battle mm -hmm. right and i've said and i've challenged bernie sanders on my program and i said look if there are more pledged delegates on her side and uh, there's no indictment well then that, mm -hmm. that race is over right those are ifs though they have not happened mm -hmm. yet and the the superdelegates vote at the convention so for you guys to call it when you don't know what the circumstances are and those people have not voted yet it is just simply incorrect that is not journalism true it is not journalism. That was Cenk Uger of the Young Turks on CNN with uh, reliable sources Brian Stelter, who, by the way, I think is an excellent journalist. Uh, but I, uh, as far as this historic moment and what a shame it is that uh, somehow Bernie Sanders trying to become president, running for president, continuing the process to run for president, that somehow that is harming this historic moment for Hillary Clinton is just absurd. The race is not over when he either chooses to drop out or when they actually nominate uh, the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. That, yes, will be a historic moment if that woman is Hillary Clinton and if she uh, is the one who's nominated. And we will have plenty of time, months and months and months, to enjoy that fantastic historic moment. Until then, let the people run and let the people vote, by the way, as uh, I'm looking forward to doing myself on Tuesday in the uh, nominating contest. Imagine that. All right, a quick break, and we are back with much more Bradcast and my guest, Tom Giovanetti of the Institute for Public Innovation. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks.
Yeah, good luck with that. Can Republicans and Democrats come together on anything? Well, maybe, maybe one thing. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Thanks in no small part to the so-called tough-on-crime laws adopted by the U.S. government in the uh, 1980s and 1990s in particular under Presidents Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton in particular, the U.S. now has the highest incarceration rate in the world. We're number one. That's due, of course, in no small part to the fact that many crimes and specific mandates for their punishment through minimum sentencing laws and so forth have been federalized and taken out of the hands of both local jurisdictions and even judges themselves. But, but, there has been a whisper, at least, uh, of good news on these fronts in recent months with calls from the Democratic presidential campaigns for criminal justice reform and even occasionally, still too occasionally for my money, uh, from Republicans like former GOP presidential candidate and U.S. Senator Rand Paul. So is the idea that two major parties here, two parties that uh, are otherwise completely broken by partisan obstructionism at the federal level, is the idea that they could actually come together to reform our bloated and arguably counterproductive federal justice system, is that a reality? As Tom Giovanetti describes in a recent op-ed at the Dallas Morning News, the White House recently announced that 58 federal inmates, mostly nonviolent drug offenders, would have their sentences shortened through commutation. This brings the total number of commutations during the Barack Obama years to 306 more than any recent administration. And word out of the White House is that there will be more to come during President Obama's final months in office. He writes that many conservatives will be initially inclined to see Obama's commutations as the act of a liberal who is soft on crime. But conservatives should celebrate President Obama's commutations, Giovanetti writes. In fact, as people who prize liberty and individual rights and who are skeptical about government power, conservatives need to do a rethink on criminal justice. Really? Yes, really. So writes Tom Giovanetti, no liberal himself. Tom Giovanetti is president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, which describes itself as an independent, nonprofit, free market policy think tank and public policy organization based in Dallas. Uh, Tom Giovanetti, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Now, uh, before we get started, just for transparency's sake, and uh, really as a basis for our conversation, uh, I've been on uh, the mailing list of the Institute for Policy Innovation for quite some time, and while you guys may not be tied specifically to a political party, to my knowledge, I I think it's fair to say, at least based on your articles and so forth, that you all lean more to the right, often far more to the right than to the left. Is, Is that a fair assessment? Yes, that's absolutely fair. I mean, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, uh, the people who like our work in Congress or in the states are probably Republicans. We have a, a bit of a libertarian leaning here, uh, but it's fairly rare that we find ourselves agreeing with progressives and liberals 
on the solutions to problems, this is probably one of the rare exceptions. Well, it's the rare exception, I think, for uh, a lot of issues at this point in this country. It's one of the reasons I want to focus on it, because uh, I may be, you know, the last one in America actually looking for places uh, where both the right and the left can come together to actually make good public policy. So. To that end, uh, while you guys, the IPI, Institute for Policy Innovation, has been very critical of uh, Obama's policies on many fronts, from the Affordable Care Act to his handling of the economy, uh, various executive agencies and so forth, nonetheless, you write in your op-ed, which is headlined, Conservatives Should Celebrate Obama's Commutations. So before we discuss why that is specifically, you also write that it's becoming clear that something has gone very wrong with the justice system in the United States. So what is it that you and perhaps other conservatives or libertarians uh, like yourself, what is it you believe has, quote, gone very wrong with the system from your perspective? Well, there's something wrong in a country where the Constitution was written specifically to protect individual liberties and individual freedoms when we find that we have the highest incarceration rate in the world, especially when the world includes places like Iran and Saudi Arabia and North Korea and Russia and places like that. And I think, you know, there are a handful of issues where both right and left can agree, although it tends to be the more sort of libertarian part of the right that tends to have intersections with the left. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of those wonderful situations where we have that opportunity. Uh, I think that the progressives and liberals have, have been at the forefront of talking about some of the abuses in the criminal justice system, uh, the problem with uh, mandatory minimum sentences and things like that. I think that conservatives are really only beginning to realize that there's a problem here. So I think for my colleagues on the center-right of the political spectrum, this is sort of an emerging issue, but it's, it's one of the ones that we are the most excited about because it does give us the opportunity to actually get something done and move the ball down the field. And just to, by way of example here, you cite, uh, so that people can get a sense of what we're talking about, you, you cite uh, in your op-ed one specific person, a guy by the name of Weldon, Angeles, who was arrested at age 24 in uh, in Utah. What, what happened to Weldon and uh, Angelos? Actually, Weldon Angelos. So, so, so Weldon is arrested for a second. I believe it was a second offense, and he was uh, he was a d drug dealer. He was dealing in cocaine, and he had some pot as well. Uh, relatively minor offense and relatively minor quantities, but there were multiple counts. When uh, when investigators went back to his apartment, they found that he had a handgun back at his apartment. He did not use the gun in the course of the committing the crime, but mm -hmm. he did possess it. And so what the prosecutor does is the prosecutor takes advantage of mandatory minimum sentences and the ability to stack charges and stack charges and, and basically puts the judge in a situation where you either have to sentence him to 55 years in prison or you have to let him go. There's, there's no flexibility. There's nowhere in between. Now, the guy did commit the crime, and the guy is deserving of some punishment, but 55 years by almost any extent is uh, far too much time to put someone away for something like that. And so the judge found him guilty, but basically made it a personal crusade for years afterward to argue that he should have his sentence uh, commuted or shortened. And, and I think it's interesting that that judge is a conservative, is a Republican. He clerked for Antonin Scalia at the mm -hmm. Supreme Court. 
So he's a conservative judge, but he recognized that there was a problem here in this situation where he was not given sufficient leeway to come up with an appropriate sentence. And I think appropriate is really the key word here. Uh, It's not an issue of being soft on crime or tough on crime. It's a matter of true justice means that the punishment fits the crime, Mm -hmm. that it's appropriate. And how crazy is it to be putting someone in jail for 55 years for selling a product that is now totally legal in the state of Colorado? I mean, it's fairly obvious that there's something way out of proportion here. And that's just one anecdote. That's just one story. Uh, our, 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 our jails, both at the federal level and at the state level, are filled with people who did not need to be incarcerated. There were other ways to punish them for them to make restitution. There were better things to do than to put them in prison with hardened criminals and essentially turn them into criminals. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, you, you, you can't help but notice when the judge here himself is on a personal crusade to try to change these laws, when the judge had no choice but to give this guy 55 years. Is he, by the way, uh, Weldon Angeles? Is he one of those who has been recently uh, uh, had his uh, sentence commuted by the president? Do you know, it was very ironic that literally just a few days after my piece came out in the mail, uh, it came out in the morning news. Yeah, uh, that sent, yes, he had his sentence commuted mm. in a in a next round of commutation. So, right. in a way, that anecdote is now out of date, although it is very telling. And 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 you know, I mean, fifty five years is probably an extreme example, but it it is just one of just thousands of thousands of instances of people who have been incarcerated unnecessarily. There are all sorts of creative ways to punish people appropriately for what they've done. And and as I say in that piece, if you're a social conservative and you believe in things like keeping families together, uh-huh. and if you believe in redemption, and if you believe in restitution and things like that, then you should certainly understand that there are better things to do with people than throw them in prison. And if you're an economic conservative, you understand that keeping someone productive in society is a better outcome than just warehousing them in a prison. You write uh, in your piece that uh, too many crimes have been federalized. Now, why is state and local control uh, over these issues, state and local control of, of, of crime, why is that any better than federalized law enforcement as you see it, Tom Giovanetti? And, and what type of crimes would be better handled at the state and local level than at the federal level as you see it and as you look forward to uh, you know, various types of reforms on this issue? Well, some of that uh, comes out of, out of my and sort of the typical philosophy that conservatives and libertarians claim to believe, and that is that we believe in limited government. And we believe that government functions best the closest it is to people. So there's really not much reason for crimes to be at the federal level. Uh, I think most of the time when federal statutes are written for crimes, it's so members of Congress can tell their voters, look, we're doing something about the problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there were, there were already state-level laws that covered that crime. There's no need to federalize murder there's no need to federalize you know really any violent crime there's no reason why those laws can't be covered at the state and local level now there are some things like when you're trafficking people across state lines you know there's reasons why hijacking and and kidnapping things like that are done at the federal level but there's no reason the only reason that crimes get federalized and this is a cynical view is so that our federal politicians can take political credit Mm -hmm. for quote-unquote doing something 
Well, uh, you know, I hear a lot of conservatives uh, or people who claim to be conservatives making that same argument, uh, Tom, that, uh, you know, it's better at the state and local level. But then when you see uh, laws that uh, Republicans, so-called conservatives, don't like at the state and local level, they try to override those, whether it comes to, you know, bans on local bans on fracking, for example, or uh, local uh, discrimination laws in this uh, silly transgender fight. You see the uh, the big state government, all, uh, you know, often coming in and overriding uh, the, the smaller local government. Similarly. You write in your article, quote, social conservatives should understand the need for criminal justice reform since we believe that every human life has inherent dignity and value. And we believe in the possibility of redemption, just as you said a few moments ago here, Tom. But now that sounds very good. And you as a social conservative may actually believe that. But I have found that the vast majority of folks who call themselves conservative, uh, whether it's you know social or uh, social conservatives or even economic conservatives, policy conservatives, don't actually believe that, uh, or at least they don't seem to vote for candidates who actually bear out that belief through policy. Uh, do you find a contradiction there? And 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 why uh, why don't we see uh, people like you say, Tom, uh, who who believe in redemption and so forth? Why don't they seem to vote that way with their candidates at the ballot box? Well, first of all, let me say that I think you're exactly right that conservatives are often inconsistent with their stated beliefs in these areas. Uh, you claim to believe in limited federal government, but then you're constantly passing laws at the federal level, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I'm going to totally grant your point that, and, and this is part of why I write the article, to be frank, is that I think that conservatives need to do a rethink. I use that exact language in the article. Mm-hmm. That you know, we don't trust the bureaucrat at the Department of Homeland Services. We don't trust the welfare bureaucrat uh, in Washington. But for some reason, when it comes to the justice system, we we seem as conservatives to have this implicit trust in in the whole system, and we throw our limited government beliefs out the window when it comes to being quote unquote tough on crime. And what I think conservatives need to start doing is applying the same skepticism that we have about all other divisions of government, about all other branches of government, we need to start applying that same skepticism to criminal justice and to civil justice. Look, it's becoming very, very clear in this country uh, when you have people who have been, you know, they've been in prison for murder, and now, you know, uh, genetic testing demonstrates that they were they were not guilty. Mm-hmm. They were wrongly convicted. And, you know, we're not having just a few of these cases. We're having many, many of these cases. So I think that any thinking conservative should be coming to the conclusion that being skeptical about our criminal justice system and demanding reform of our criminal justice system is not an exception to their conservative beliefs. It's entirely consistent with their conservative beliefs. And I'm glad you're saying that, Tom Giovanetti, because this is one of the things that has driven me crazy about conservatives for years. People who claim to be conservatives, they say one thing, they vote another. Uh, and, and frankly, the Republican Party is selling selling it that way, selling this you know one belief and then providing a different type of policy, it seems to me. And one example, uh, we spoke on this program a few weeks ago with Ryan Grimm of the Huffington Post. Uh, he's been doing a series of, of stories on places like Mississippi. Mississippi, where the state government has made promises to local cities and counties that they will provide prisoners 
if those cities and counties will provide jail space for them. And they they promise to pay them money to do that, and they guarantee a certain amount of revenue for these uh, localities, uh, and also manpower to these localities through prisoner labor, prison labor, uh, that has replaced local hiring for certain services in these towns. So without these prisoners, if we have criminal justice reform, uh, some of those local budgets and municipalities are going to be in trouble. So does that work against the idea of criminal justice reform once Republicans actually start looking at these issues and saying, now we got too many problems, we better keep the system where it is. We've now come to rely on this prison industrial complex in many ways. Well, I'm not familiar with the specifics of the Mississippi case that you talk about, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I actually think that, you know, since I am the president of a think tank, you know, we're in the idea business. And, and some different reform projects we've been working on here for 20-plus years before you see anything come to fruition. I actually think conservatives are coming around relatively fast on this issue of criminal justice reform. A number of state legislatures that are Republican-controlled have passed criminal justice reform legislation this year. In fact, there's actually a website, and it's not mine, so this is not, I'm not just mm-hmm. outing my own stuff here, but there's actually a website called rightoncrime.com, and it's, it is all about conservative-led criminal and civil justice reform, and they keep a tally there of legislation that is proposed and passed at the state level that is doing things about you know, mandatory sentences, that are doing things about civil asset forfeiture mm-hmm. and, and other things. And I'm frankly astounded at how quickly folks on the center-right are starting to do this rethink on criminal justice reform and civil justice reform. I, I think it's one of the fastest changes of mind that have happened uh, on an issue that I've seen in the time that I've been in the idea business. Now, it is still conservatives who are standing in the way. Mm-hmm. You've got senators in Washington, like my, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Texas. My own Senator Cornyn is one of the senators who's really sort of trying to stand in the way of these kinds of reforms. There's a senator in Arkansas named Tom Cotton who is similarly, you know, you, you can't put someone away long enough for Senator Tom Cotton. Right, right. And, and he's a Republican, and I'm a Republican. I just think he's wrong on, on this issue. But you've got more libertarian-type Republicans like, like Mike Lee from Utah and uh, Rand Paul, of course, who are pushing criminal justice reform legislation at the federal level. And frankly, I just think the fact that that legislation is being pushed by Republicans is a great sign that we are starting to do this rethink that we need to do. The, and, and to be fair here, by the way, even though, uh, you know, there is, uh, I said that uh, the, the powerful prison, private prison industrial complex, that's at work here. Uh, the, you know, the, the, those who, the Republicans who support these private prisons, uh, but also on the Democratic side, you've got financial stakes as well, uh, prison guard unions, uh, you know, as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of folks who have reason to not reform the system. I hope you're right, Tom Giovanetti, uh, that things are actually moving in the right direction. You'll forgive me if I'm still really skeptical here. You you actually see this as actually coming to pass. I know you've been looking at policy for many years, and it, you're right. It does take a long time. You're actually hopeful that something can happen, not just at the local level, uh, not just at the state level, but even at the federal level when we have a system that is just so terribly 
broken. I mean, I don't hear, you know, Donald Trump on the Republican side at all talking about, uh, you know, criminal justice reform. That doesn't seem to come up at all and and hardly came up at all in the uh, months and months of debates on the Republican side uh, for the presidential nomination. Yet you feel this is a a reality, but it's just a reality that's going to take a while? I describe this as an emerging issue on the right, and, and that's what I mean by that. It's it's really happening bottom up. It's not being led at, at Washington. It's not being led from Washington. Mm-hmm. It's being led at the state level. You know, right now in Washington, there's almost nothing getting done because during during President Obama's entire term, Republicans and Democrats have, have been almost completely unable to work together on anything. But at the state level, state legislatures are functioning uh you know, from our view, taxes are being cut, which is a good thing. But th- there are something like 13 or 14 states who have passed criminal justice reforms of various types mm. just this year. So, yes, I absolutely believe it's happening, not in Washington, but it's happening at the state level. And reforms at the state level eventually do bubble their way up to Washington. So there's probably only maybe a 20% chance during this legislative session of some reform bill passing in Washington, but I think that that probably goes up to more like 50 or 60 percent in the next Congress. And, you know, within the next four or five years, I would fully expect there to be reform of federal mandatory minimum sentences. Tom Giovanetti, we will leave it on that optimistic note since it's so difficult to find any these days. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate it. I, and, and frankly, Tom, I look forward to having you back uh, on, uh, on something that we can fight like hell over because I'm sure, sure there's let's plenty. Do, let's do it. Let's do there's it. There's plenty of those. I, I will look forward to that. Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. You can get more uh, information on their work at IPI.org and on the Twitters at IPI. Tom Giovanetti. Thanks so much for joining us today. I enjoyed it. Thanks. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast. Capitalism versus socialism. Which one is really eating our nation alive? That and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you. Good folks over at Crooks and Liars brought this to my attention. Uh, Steve Scalise, the Republican uh, House Majority Whip, very high in the leadership position in the U.S. House, was on uh, one of these Fox News shows, one of these Sunday shows on Fox News, 
And uh, he's uh, supporting Donald Trump and was giving a litany of reasons why Donald Trump will be better in the White House than any Democrat. And uh, and he sort of finished his his argument with this. Clearly, President Obama stood in the way and Hillary Clinton's going to keep it going with this socialist talk uh, that he she and Bernie Sanders are fighting over who's who's the furthest left socialist. Yeah, uh, we're not a socialist nation. Oh, really? We're not. We're not a socialist nation. Uh, uh, Congressman Scalise. As uh, Heather at Crooks and Liars notes that apparently in GOP world, all those programs that they'd like to destroy, like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Veterans Administration and so forth, don't count as really being American because don't tell them those are socialist programs. Bill Maher over the weekend on HBO's Real Time talked about how socialism has long been the uh, the whipping boy for those who uh, do nothing but support capitalism. Here's Bill Maher from The Weekend. Finally, new rule since this year's presidential race features both an unabashed socialist and a bona fide capitalist pig. Someone needs to explain to the free market solves everything crowd that when it comes to socialism, you're soaking in it. Marco Rubio says, if you want to live in a socialist country, why not move to a socialist country? Oh, you mean like Florida, where everyone's on Social Security? (laughs) Yes, so many Americans hate the word socialism, but love the concept. Medicare, unemployment, disability, farm subsidies. Forget the transgender debate. What America really needs is a separate bathroom for welfare queens. You know, back in February, when democracy was still serious and Trump was still a joke, (laughs) 66% of young people told pollsters that corporate America, quote, embodies everything that is wrong with America. And that, more than anything else, is what this election is about. And what side you're on in that debate is all about your generation. Older Americans are more religious. And America's real religion is capitalism. And like any religion, it needs a devil. And that devil has always been socialism. In 1961, Ronald Reagan said if we passed Medicare, we'd wind up telling our children what it was once was like in America when men were free. Thanks, Nostra dumbass. Republicans always think if you allow a little socialism, it'll spread out of control. But actually, it's the opposite. It's capitalism that we've let spread out of control. It's it's eaten our democracy. It's eating our middle class. It's eaten our health care system, our prison system, our news media. It's even eaten our food system so thoroughly that a lot of our food is no longer something that should be eaten. Because, because capitalism is a shark, or a tidal wave, or pond scum, or whatever metaphor you like to describe an unthinking force that devours everything in its path. And now the latest thing it is scarfing down is our national parks. The government just announced they would be selling naming rights at the parks like we do at sports stadiums because the parks are $11 billion in debt, and since capitalism solves everything, cue corporate America, who's always asking one simple question, how can we help? 
Nothing in it for us. We just want to lend a hand. Like when Bill Cosby offers to help you with your modeling <laughs> career. <laughs> so get ready to see the bison roaming at Yellowstone with the Nike swoosh shaved into their ass. <laughs> and you'll, you'll no longer be having anonymous gay sex in Yosemite's rest area number 12. You'll be getting in the Quicken Loans men's room. <laughs> The Grand Tetons will be brought to you by Hooters and the... <laughs> and the Washington Monument by Cialis. <laughs> and the Statue of Liberty by Massengill. <laughs> Give me your tired, your hungry, your feeling not so fresh. <laughs> you know, when you're handing over national parks to corporations, when the price of a life-saving drug goes up 5,000% overnight, when our elections are being bought by the evil puppet from the Saw movies. Sheldon it's time to realize we're better off if there are a few things that free market profiteers can't get their cloven hooves on. On the same day I read about the $11 billion the parks need, there was also this headline, $40 billion Air Force tanker program delayed. Because that's the problem with the Grand Canyon. It doesn't make Boeing rich. It just sits there, stupid canyon. <laughs> I'm not arguing against the free market, just not for everything. It's funny, older people think socialism is capitalism's enemy, and younger people think it's capitalism's replacement, but they're both wrong. What socialism is, is capitalism's lap band something to prevent it from eating everything. That was Bill Maher over the weekend on HBO's Real Time. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. To my guest today, Tom Giovanetti of the Institute for Public Innovation, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated, as are those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on the air and continue doing what we do. All right, you can find and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. You can drop me email at bradcast at bradblog.com. I think that's it for now. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.